Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. Values is really important to products and so it's not always there, but I'd like to say that we're doing our best to really build that as a part of our, almost a part of our brand really. Yeah. We're not here to just design products for the sake of products. I, I find that frustrating in a way that that still happens. We're obviously a, a nation that consumes a lot and we, we throw a lot away and, and I think that I'm in a world that potentially adds to that quite a bit. So I'd like to say that long term I'll be a part of some amazing products that truly add value. Hey, it's Adam Murray here. That was a little bit from my guest for this week, Nathan Lutitz, who works at a place called the Centre for Design Innovation, which happens to be at the place where I used to go to university, Swinburne University of Technology in Hawthorne in Melbourne. It was pretty cool to go back there. It's changed a lot since I've been there. Nathan gets to hang out with some pretty cool stuff every day, a whole bunch of 3D printers. He does a lot of really cool stuff thinking about new products and innovation and applying design thinking to that. He's got a like a, a room, a collaboration room, which is like something out of Minority Report, which I'll, I'll put a few videos up on Instagram about. The area that he's working in is a pretty exciting area of change. And Nathan has an industry design, industrial design industry background, and he's actually working at the university in a centre that's looking to harness all the amazing stuff that's happening at university across the different departments, all the great thinking, all the talent there, all the technology, and producing something that industry can actually harness as well, that industry can make use of. So they're, they're a business, essentially, that's helping other businesses in their product design and thinking all the way through to manufacturing and realising a new concept. It's really cool. I think it has a lot of implications for how we're going to live in the future and how... Um, how that can be shaped. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Nathan on the subtle disruption of product innovation and design. Thank you. Yeah, Nathan, it's awesome to be sitting here with you. Nice to have you here. Thanks for being on the podcast. Do you want to talk about, well, for starters, where we actually are and why you've chosen this place for our conversation? Sure. So we're in the Centre for Design Innovation, which is a centre that's set up within Swimmerine University. And essentially, we're a centre that's there to go and talk to industry about how we as a university can help them do what they do, but maybe in a little bit different manner or maybe even a little bit better. So we tend to bring creativity and innovation and, and manufacturing sorts to the table. So traditionally, they might do something and they might have a particular problem and we, uh, we go about helping them and often in a, in a product-based solution. So I uh, thought we'd better meet in this design interactive room or we call it the design ops lab, yeah. which is, you can't see it unfortunately, but it's a space with lots of walls and we can throw content from, from many surfaces to many other surfaces and move them around and, and the really fun space. So it's a real collaborative environment. We get big groups in here and we shoot ideas around and get really creative. So it's a really fun space. I wish we could I turn might this even, into audio. <laughs> yeah. Well, I might even take a little video Definitely. and put it on the post as well so Definitely. that people can see a little bit of Vanilla Sky. Is it, no, Minority Report minority about report, it. Yeah. That's it. I think it's not NCIS. Yeah, it might be. It's those sorts of shows with yeah. interactive tables and imagine putting an interactive table on every wall and then suddenly you've got yeah, absolute freedom in, in throwing content around a room. 
Yeah. yeah. I don't think I told you this yet, but I actually went to Swinburne. Oh, you didn't. You've yeah. just dropped me this dropped on, this on me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did my undergrad here at BIT. Mm-hmm. It was in this building, definitely wasn't here. BA building. BA and engineering building a little bit. Okay, well, well we have a little bit of an internal jokes going around here about those two buildings you've just mentioned. They are the oldest and most original on campus. So they're they're due for an upgrade, but we, we respect them in a funny way. <laughs> <laughs> they are quite ugly, yeah, I'd yeah. have to say. Your your building is beautiful. We're very lucky. Yeah. Very lucky. University has changed dramatically since I was here, but I, I have some fond memories of, of being here and the, the area as well. Yeah. Hawthorne's a cool space. <laughs> yeah, it is. Mm. The question I have is almost the opposite of what you were saying, sure. which is, you know, you're saying partly about what your job is and what, what the centre here is for, is about showing that business can deal with university and get, I guess industry-grade results yeah, in a way. Sure. Why do that inside a university? Why does why not have that outside a university and create what you've created here? Like, what's the advantage of having what you've got inside a university? Yeah, it's actually a really good question. We've talked about it a lot internally because in some regards, we, we could almost take what the Centre for Design Innovation is about and do it outside. But I guess that what I see is the biggest opportunity, I'm not saying we've absolutely harnessed it just yet, But I think every university, no matter whether it's Swinburne or other, or even TAFE for that matter, they have a hell of a lot of capability and capacity on one campus. And I always say that when I'm giving sort of an overview of what the Centre for Design Innovation is about. You have one space that's absolutely packed with talent, whether it be mines, whether it be equipment, whether it be capability in general. And so I think it's very rare almost impossible to find that amount of, of sheer excitement and, and, and machinery and equipment and capability and capacity, as I say, in one area. And so if we can actually break all that down and come together, the offering is just unparalleled in my opinion and so so rare to see that. So I think that's why industry gets so excited. They come in here and they, they, they do a tour of the uni and they leave going, wow, there's amazing stuff going on. The issue in the past has been that the universities can't always run at the pace in which industry might want them to. And so that's what it's all about. It's just grabbing all that potential and actually turning it into, in our role and in the Centre for Design Innovation, a tangible reality. And not just tangible for the sake of a physical thing, but also is it viable? Can it work in the commercial space in terms of business and dollars and cents? And so that's what we do. We try to break down all those walls and bring all that talent. I get so motivated by it. I go, there's so much here on one campus. Surely we can pair industry with this because the results should be and are now being phenomenal. So it's really exciting. And and I think it's it's the big amount of sheer talent and minds and equipment all in one space and, and unleash that and you can see that the results would be yeah, endless without being too cliche. I guess the more traditional way of thinking about university is that the learning happens there and then you go and do something with it afterwards yeah. and you're kind of saying, well, let's learn and do something at the same time. Let's Absolutely. bring that together. You're right. Yeah. And that's the nice thing about what we're doing. In some way, we're somewhat separated from the educational element in that what we're doing here in the centre is is not necessarily with students yet, but almost all the team members teach in to the different courses. And so indirectly, yeah. you're actually getting live feed from these industry-based projects straight into those staff, those lecturing staff and who are, who are passing it on to the students. So I think that it makes complete sense. And almost upon reflection, it should be normal. It should be that we have these sorts of centres in every research institution or universities in TAFE because it does have a fall-on effect to the students. So if I can be in industry, whether it's out there on my own or whether it's for the university as a part of the Centre for Design Innovation, if I can be on the floor running one day and then lecturing on that topic the next day, 
you can see it in their eyes as students. They glow and they go, oh, that really makes sense because it's relevant, it's now, and they get it. I don't think there's much worse than getting outdated because I think it's then somewhat questionable about your legitimacy lecturing on that topic. So I think that, A, it should be there, but also when it is, like now, it's so exciting because it just makes that teaching so much more relevant. So there's multiple good effects, I think. Yeah. yeah. We've talked a little bit about the stuff that's in this room, but what mm. what other cool stuff is in this building as well? That All right, so we'll keep it to this building because there's a lot on a campus. So yeah. just, to, just a taste. At the very bottom of this building, we have what's called Factory of the Future, and I walked you past it, and that, that is a space where it's all exactly what I've said, but I guess it's all about getting industry in on an advanced manufacturing, future manufacturing type level, so all the latest and greatest in equipment. So we've got metal 3D printers, printing titanium, printing aluminium, printing stainless steel. We're talking about medical. We're talking about wearables. We're talking about all different sorts of products that are now being questioned in regards to how they're made and maybe some of these bits of equipment can do them in a different way, maybe a better way. Maybe it's not better, but the fact that we're asking the question is the fun part. So we've got Factory of the Future harnessing all different sorts of equipment. We've got all your typical CNC machinery in terms of working with metals, working with timbers. We've got labs that specialise in carbon fibre and composites. We've got labs that are specialising in, in wearable sensors. We've got a professor just next door who's specialised, a world expert in wearable sensors, putting sensors into cricket balls and footballs and into shoes and professional sport to get absolute crystal clear reality behind what sort of loads and forces are going through people's joints or particular parts of their bodies. So we have, you know, physical spaces that allow for, you know, great collaboration like this room in terms of interactive. We've we've got test laboratories for, you know, earthquake testing next door. We've got a really great astronomy department, which is sort of leading and, and I believe one of our professors discovered a planet last year. So, I mean, the things that are happening on, on this campus are phenomenal. In this building alone, this building is the advanced manufacturing and design centre. So it's more around design and manufacturing as, as a sort of collaborative effort. So we tend to stick more to equipment in this space, but there's lots of great thinking in psychology. Business has got quite a good name. So it's really broad, but um, there's, there's a lot of good stuff happening in this one building. Yeah, It's fun to come to work daily. I can put it that way. Yeah. How You mentioned, I think, just before we started recording about one of your jobs you see is breaking down the silos yeah. in the university. Like, you talked about making sure that the university can go at the speed that industry expects as well. Mm -hmm. How have you gone about, because I know you've come from industry into mm. this place and you've built up a team over time, like what things have you brought in to make that a reality, to break down those silos and, and get things at the right pace? I think there's two parts to that, to that or to how we've addressed it. One is my direct boss, Professor Blair Keyes, he and I started this together and so he's from academia and he grabbed me from industry to get to help out on some of these industry projects. So starting with that as a base, as a, as a framework, that sort of allowed us to tackle this together. And the reason why that's been so important is because he understands the system, he understands what happens and why. I can come in and be quite judgmental about how the system runs and I can get quite irritated by how it runs and it does frustrate me to the nth degree at times. Yeah. But having him to balance it out and help me understand allows us to address it. So the way we're doing it is... And it's really simple, in my opinion, it's, it's relationships. It's making sure that we're constantly talking to people and understanding who's doing what and why. And so it can be as simple as before you came along, half an hour before you came, I gave a tour through the Centre for Design Innovation for a big electrical company. And they're one of many groups who come through weekly through the university to see what Swinburne's are all about. And that was a good example where some of the people internal to Swinburne had never even seen this room, had never even heard what the Centre for Design Innovation does. Now, that sounds a little bit crazy, but it's actually quite common. The university is quite a big business when you think about it. All of them are. And so 
to expect everyone to know what everyone's doing is, is somewhat naive of me, but I think that by building relationships and making sure that we, we don't have to stay segregated, we can talk, we can have coffee, we can catch up, we can make sure that we're constantly spreading the word about who's doing what and why. And I think that as a starting point is really important because if I get a call about, you know, someone comes and says, I've got this particular problem and it's nothing to do with me, I would like to think that in a university you probably have a solution somewhere on the campus and it's about understanding who does that or who might specialise in the area. And even if we don't have a solution, we probably have someone who knows another person at another university or another company, for example. So simply, we've just, we've just grown relationships to, to spread the word and also to hear more about what everyone else is doing. But because I'm from industry, it's been somewhat easier to say, all right, it's great that there's a system that does this. But if that's going to take six weeks and in industry I can do it in six days, well, then we have to find a new way. And I can't sit here and say that I'm breaking down the system and restructuring the system because I'm not at that level. I'm not that person yet at this university. However, I can find an alternative way that ensures that this team that we've built up over time can run at the pace they need to. So in some ways, we've sort of respectfully separated ourselves from the university systems when it suited us. And other times, those systems have been our best friend and have actually helped us so although I can be critical, sometimes they're brilliant and they really help us. So to answer your question, I think, um, you know, separating ourselves from the systems that take too long, ensuring that I remember exactly what we do in industry on a daily basis, we allow this team to do also. And I don't let them get hooked into the, the daily administration or anything like that that might distract them. Yeah. They're here to do a job. They're here to design. And so do everything I can to protect that space around them and let them run at that speed. And, and we've so far string, strung sorry, six years together of running at that pace and, it's somewhat really basic because it is what we did in industry and we're just linking it with the really nice and brilliant minds in the research space and bring it all together. So simply I think it's relationships and being aware of what's going on and just finding a way around um, that red tape, I guess you could call it. Yeah. yeah. Such an important role, I guess, in any organisation, particularly as it gets larger, is that almost that grease, that person that knows some of that social knows everything that's going on mm. is able to make those connections mm-hmm. at the right time. I agree. What in your team that you've got here, what what sort of backgrounds do they have? What what are the skills that they have? Oh, it's so varied. That's probably the brilliance. So we've got, as I said, my my direct boss, Professor Blake East, he's obviously a professor as I said, and so he's sort of specialized in surface chemistry and applying sort of, I guess you could say, clear coats in a way to timbers to make them last longer. That's sort of where his PhD was. So we started in that sort of timber area. He and I's first project was with a Tasmanian metal manufacturing company specialised in, in metal fabrication, mainly for Caterpillar out of Tasmania, yeah. or the mining company Caterpillar, and they wanted to diversify, so we helped them do that. We then jumped into a plastics project with MHG Plastics, who were a big T1 automotive supplier and still are. And then we moved into performance products. And so the projects are varied and we've kind of got people as we've needed them. So when we got the toy project on that I showed you about, I needed another product designer. So I brought brought him on, Matt, his name is. And his background was in typical product design consultancy work, so product-based designing. We then needed another person and we're going to take on a metal project, metal fabrication. And so I got a guy who'd specialised in designing and fabricating library shoots to people put their, their books on these library shoots, <laughs> but it was all metal fabrication. So well, the processes and principles were the same and so yeah. we got him on board. Yeah. And then he helped a lot on our on our big skylight project, which I, I showed you. And so his background in metals really helped. And we continued to develop the team. We'd get them based on sort of what projects we were getting. And so we have a Product design engineer Jackie Savage, who is an absolute legend. She helps us a little bit, but she runs her own company and she's doing wearable technology. And I can't go into it because it's, it's you know, protected, but 
her background is product design engineering to a sense, but she's developed her own amazing bit of IP to basically address the area of cancer and cancer patients. And it's phenomenal. So her background in, in sort of almost like that computer, computing, coding, but also engineering and, and product development all comes into, into handy, like it's very handy as well. We have... Another product design engineer who's released his own sports bottle, his own fitness bottle, which yeah. is like a shaker bottle. So okay. sort of his background in manufacturing, a really heavy background in manufacturing has been phenomenal. We've got traditional researchers who have all gone through the academic system. They're all about understanding how to research certain markets quickly and efficiently, whereas us typical industry folk don't research those areas so well yeah. like they do. So really varied backgrounds. We've gone about it forever. But traditionally, industrial designers, which tend to be people who design and develop products, Product design engineers, which tend to be a sort of jewel of mechanical engineering and product design, bring that real engineering smarts to it. And traditional researchers who help us really understand markets, find gaps, and really good at asking the right questions, even in our space of product design, they're really different thinkers. So everyone's got their own backgrounds, but a lot of it's either plastic, metals, wearables, timber, so quite varied. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was mentioning to you also as well that I'm a product manager. Yes. I'm not a product designer, but a product manager in consultancy that helps software startups. Yes. You know, the software world developed or took a lot of principles from lean manufacturing and adopted them to, you know, agile software development, which mm. I don't know if you're aware of. But mm. I'm wondering about, you know, in the design and innovation space that you're in, like what, are, what processes are you using to develop a brand new idea like that? Like what methods of the state of the art, I guess, at the moment. Yeah, it's, we hear this question quite a bit, especially because that word innovation has been thrown around all the time. It's somewhat frustrating to us because innovation isn't a new thing. It's something that's I've said to you before, actually. It's always been there. Innovation is, is, if you're a good designer, no matter what field you're in, I would argue that innovation is really always there because the, the definition of innovation, in my opinion, is very much a you know, very unique solutions to, to problems. And so an innovative solution is what we're always after. The way we go about it is typical across all projects. We, we always have a problem or an opportunity. And, and I'm not sure there's any other example. There's always a problem or an opportunity that drives the project when they come into us. And we always tackle it the same way. We always research the market. No matter how well the client believes they understand their market, often that can be their downfall because they think they know the market and it's good for us to take an approach or a different look from, from afar and really understand it from our eyes. A, to make sure we can design the products appropriately for their market, but B, to also make sure we can't see anything else that maybe they've missed, that maybe they've gotten to their own way, but might not be the best way. So it starts with the research, and that's a big topic. It's hard to break that down in, in the length that we've got. We could probably talk about it all night, but the way in which we break down the research is, is quite strategic based on the project and what we're trying to tackle, but really it's that, it's that broad look at understanding the market, the market size, who's leading that space, why they're leading that space, why is a product the way it is? We really love to question products that we're working on because it's easy to look at a chair and say a chair's a chair, but does that have to be the best way in which a human actually sits down and pauses? Is the chair the right way? We probably think it is after this time. It's not a great example, but we love questioning why is that product the way it is? Is there a better way to do it? And right now the team are working next door on a barbecue project design that's probably going to be the world's most premium barbecue. It's quite a rare project to have a really high-end product with a good budget, mind you. And they're, they're really questioning every element. Uh, a control knob's the best way to control temperature on a barbecue. Yeah. We love to question every single functional element and so find cool. the best solution. Yeah, so I'm not sure there's an ultimate method, but we love to break everything down bit by bit and literally component by component and then tear it apart and ask all the big questions to ensure when we start to bring it all back together, we have the ultimate solution. 
after the research, we, we move into ideation. We call it ideation. It's really just a sketching or idea sketching. That, in my opinion, is probably the most valuable part of the design process because that's where all the gold happens. That's where all the creative thinkers can put all their ideas on the paper or on digital tablet. doesn't really matter how you do it. It's so valuable, but it's often the part that's least valued by the clients. They don't quite yet understand why sketching is worth something, why actually drawing is worth something. They think, oh, you're drawing, that's great, it looks pretty. But what they don't get is that's when it's the designer sitting there and saying, when I was researching, I found this bit of technology. What if I did this part to it and I altered it this way? And then suddenly that's new, that's different, that's never been done before, that's innovation. And so applying that new idea to the product, whether it be the problem or the opportunity, that's applying that different set of thinking to the brief. So I think that ideation and the sketching down of every single idea when you're not too constrained yet by materials, you're not too constrained yet by manufacturing, you're not constrained by anything. The brilliance of good designers is you step away from all of it and no idea is a bad idea and it all comes out. And that's what we do. We get it all out on the table and we do it in groups, we do it individually and we just constantly go back and forth, sometimes with the client, sometimes without the client. Sometimes we'll do it with focus groups that would use the product, sometimes we'll do it with people that will never use the product and it's all about getting every single detail and and trying to cover every single element from every single angle to try and find where does that product opportunity fall down and how can we address that and ideally we find an answer for all those things and create the best product and from then on it's really a matter of steps which are almost always the same and that is take the idea to a a set selection of ideas model them up in 3D um, CAD and then computer-aided design, I should say, and then we render them so we make them look like visuals that are easy for the client to understand or the market to understand. We then pick a preferred concept. We then go through a product development phase where we develop the product to be, I guess you could argue, more plausible or manufacturable. We then would have a sign-off point, typically at that stage, where we would say, all right, that is definitely our direction, we're happy with it. We'd go through a DFM stage, design for manufacture. That's where the engineers jump on board and we really detail everything to hit that particular manufacturing process and material. And then you've got everything which comes into the business side, which is manufacturing, pilot runs, samples, distribution, packaging, everything. So we play in that entire space and some projects go from that research through to conceptual level. And more often for us these days, it goes from, you know, from the very front research stage and implementation all the way through to manufacturing. Because it's not just about manufacturing a product, it's about finding the ultimate way to do that. So with the Skylight example I spoke about earlier, the fact that we found 75% efficiency in their production line, we built that into them. That's resulting in in a lot. That allows a local manufacturer to not just make more money, but allows them to survive. It allows them to to hire people for new parts. It allows them to grow. There's a lot of things that 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 affects. And so it's not just design. It's not just good-looking products. It's about understanding what are they doing, what doesn't work and why, and then addressing all of it. Yeah. it's a big topic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I was showing you my breathness before. It's something that I've <laughs> I had to start it. thinking about for the first yeah. time myself as yeah. well. Like, yeah. yeah, it's not just creating a beautiful tin, but also how do you think, how is it going to get packed and where's it all coming from? And, you know, some of those ideas for, for us, they're not all the most efficient things. It's not, not the most important thing to do most efficiently at the moment is to get a thing out there and then we can refine it over time. But... Yeah, I can see such value in those questions. The other question that I guess I've been starting to think about a bit with what I'm doing mm-hmm. and also in the software work that I do as well, and I'm pretty lucky that the company I work at there is quite a values-driven company. Sure. But it's the question of, you know, I guess it's almost the is it's a should question. I don't really like should questions, but <laughs> do you ever bring in like, I guess, a value or an ethics kind of overlay 
to what you're doing? Like, is there any kind of that injection or do, you, do your clients bring that or is that sort of ignored? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would, I'd love to say it's not ignored, but I'm not going to say that every time there is a great, I'm not going to say set of values, but I guess ethics, as you say, in, in what we do. There, there is and there isn't. Sometimes a client brings it, sometimes we bring it. I'm a big believer that there, there's got to be a good why behind everything and you've got to make sure that that product is justified, not just justified in terms of dollars and cents and market position, but that we're doing something good for the right reason. So I showed you that interactive toy where we're merging physical boys with digital apps there's a great message behind all of that because there was some educational in there. There was some making sure we weren't making things for the sake of making them and having dust collectors. There was a whole bunch of good whys in that yeah. project, but I can't say in product design there always is. There are definitely projects where we are adding more plastic product to the market. I would like to say, and I'm pretty confident, that all of our products are justified because our client has a problem. They need to address it. Either we do it or someone else does it. And I'd like to think that because of the people we have in the team, we tend to bring in a set of values that says, well, yeah, we're going to end up with a plastic product here, but we're going to go about it this way because of X, Y, and Z. And whether that means trying to find biopolymers that allow us to make things in a more sustainable fashion, whether it's trying to find the better manufacturing process that is more sustainable or, or less energy efficient, whether it's trying to make sure we inject a bit of intellectual property that really helps justify, you know, whether it's a meaningful thing, whether it's an educational thing. Subtle injections of, of I think, values is really important to products. And so it's not always there, but I'd like to say that we're doing our best to really build that as a part of our, almost a part of our brand, really. Yeah. We're not here to just design products for the sake of products. I, I find that frustrating in a way that that still happens. We're obviously a, a nation that consumes a lot and we, we throw a lot away. And, and I think that I'm in a world that potentially adds to that quite a bit. So I'd like to say that long-term I'll be a part of some amazing products that truly add value. Yeah. And it's a bit cliche to say add value to people's lives, but ideally that's where it'll go. So for me, I think I told you on the phone, I'm a big, big fan of Elon Musk and Tesla because of the why. And that's what I'd love to get us into. We're probably touching on that, but not yet at the size nor the brand yet to really pull those types of projects ongoing, but we'll get there, no doubt about it. Yeah. Mm. I feel the same way about the things that I do too. Like I don't want to put something out there that, for one, is going to make, is going to detract from people's well-being mm. and just is going to go to landfill. Mm. And some of the things I am doing, like our tins, I guess, they're recyclable, but I guess a lot of them will end up in landfill. Sure. And, you know, I, I get little snippets of the some of the exciting things that are happening with materials around, you know, sort of, you know, packaging for wine that's being grown from, you know, fungi and, and things like that, which for me seem pretty exciting, but you must hear about some pretty amazing stuff that's happening in this world. Almost daily. I wouldn't say daily, but almost daily we're hearing about new things. And that's probably another benefit why universities have it over a lot of other, let's say, companies because there's so much going on at a research level. And sometimes, unfortunately, and this is somewhat controversial, it might result in, in articles and, and publications that don't get read by anyone. And, and I'm quite critical of that. But often, they'll result in something that will become our norm. So right now, we might be using titanium for something. That's the ultimate material in product design, where we love to talk about titanium. We don't use it very much because it's so expensive and crazy. But <laughs> let's just say, as an example, we love to use it. That would have started as an idea. It would have started out as, well, we could try and use it for this. And suddenly, I'm showing you a 3D printed titanium part. So I think it's really important that we, we do all that research. And someone has to fund that. We find those new materials. But you're right. Because of that front end looking and searching, we do end up hearing all the time about 
crazy materials. And right now, one of the people in this building, Rowan Fox, Professor Rowan Fox, she runs Factory of the Future, which I mentioned before, and she's a world expert in carbon fibre. And and right now, I believe one of her major focuses is on automating the carbon fibre process. So what is traditionally a manual process or a more, I should say, labour-intensive, slow process, looking to automate that and make that faster, suddenly it becomes more affordable. So you start then, due to affordable because of speed, being able to apply it to areas that couldn't otherwise be applied to. Now, you could argue that carbon fibre is the most unsustainable material going around. You could also argue that the the joy that that's going to bring to some people li- people's lives in regards to... Uh, let's say, prosthetics. That's a really good example where maybe only the highest of high athletes might be able to access that through funding, for example, um, and that Joe Blow down the road couldn't access it. Well, maybe now Joe Blow can access it. And so you're right, we get to see cool materials all the time. It's then finding, do they have an application? And often they're still at that, the ones we read about and love, they're still at that level where we can't quite use them yet. Biopolymers is a good example. We, We love to find new materials. The idea of using those really sustainable materials that break down really well, it's a really controversial topic right now. People want to use them, but they're not as sustainable as you might think they are. And so even simple things like your your milk boxes and your juice boxes, they can be recycled. Do we have the facility in Australia to actually pull the little plastic layer out of them to break them down to be fully recycled properly? Not just yet. So it's a really interesting area. We're pushing, and I'm really proud that we're pushing. Universities, everyone, business, you know, industry, everyone's pushing. So it's pretty fun space. It's then our job, I guess, to find the best material. And that's such a big topic because best material based on what? Yeah. Unfortunately, price is always a real factor. Performance is always a real factor. And sometimes sustainability gets left behind. But that's something we're trying to address. And you know, ethically, we have a responsibility to do that. So we are. We really are. We do, we do generally care about it. I think the more we mature as product designers, the more we actually care about that. And so we're seeing, I think, a real shift, at least mentally, towards addressing it. It's now making sure we find the right solution, which isn't, isn't easy by any means. Mm. The other thing, I guess, that is a good that comes from the work that you're doing is around bringing a manufacturing industry back to the local the local area as well. Like it's probably, I don't really know about this stuff, but you could probably fill me in, but I imagine that manufacturing has been a massive exodus away from this country over a long period of time, car, car plants shutting down and a whole lot of stuff like that. Mm. It seems like, based on what you're talking about with the work that you're doing and the availability of things like 3D printers that it's enabling local businesses to start manufacturing again. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... I think the consensus is that manufacturing is on the way down. I would argue that it's probably not. It's the, if, you, if you read enough, there's probably enough stats now to show that the reality is what we're going to become is a more specialised manufacturing nation. And, and that's, oh, I'm talking outside of my, my knowledge right now, but I've read enough now to say that we'll become more niche, we'll manufacture more, more uh, specialist products. And so manufacturing won't leave. We may not be able to play in that mass manufacturing game like your example of automotive manufacturing sector. For me, the exciting thing is, and that's where some of the projects I mentioned to you, it lies in the opportunity, and that is that you've got, let's say, 170-odd injection moulding companies that supplied to automotive. That's a lot of smarts and a lot of equipment that could do a hell of a lot of product outside of automotive. The machines worldwide, those machines are used for hundreds, probably thousands, tens of thousands, millions maybe of different products. So we don't have to do automotive. So it's now, can we upskill or transition, really, those skills and those machines into other products. Of course we can. It's willingness to do it. It's a bit of money and it's a bit of time. And can we do it quick enough? So, yeah, I think right now the idea of helping manufacturers is a big part of our focus. We've got a lot of injection molding companies linked to automotive. 
but not just injection molding companies, a lot of manufacturing in general. But some of the examples I showed you with the skylights, you know, turning a process into another process, it's still local, but it's allowing that business to grow more and bring on more people and help the manufacturing sector as a whole because they can employ more because they've grown so much out of what we've done. Obviously, diversification has been really important. Our very first client was a mining company, or sorry, a metal manufacturer for mining sector. I think it was something like 90% of their business was in mining. Now, they don't have to just do mining, and they were aware of that, and that's the benefit of the CEO from that company. She knew that she had to step outside of mining before it was too far gone. They saw a lot of their product moving offshore to India, which is becoming a big hub for metal fabrication, and so, well, let's address it while we can. And so it's easy for me to say address it while we can. You've got to have the foresight and be willing to jump, but if you do and you engage with someone like Centre for Design Innovation at Swinburne or another, anyone really, if you engage and are willing to step outside of your comfort zone, we can probably find gaps in markets and design products for those gaps to utilise those expertise and those, that equipment. So it's pretty exciting. I, I think it's, it's a no-brainer. It should yeah. be happening more. Yeah. There's multiple hurdles as to why it doesn't always happen, but, yeah, it's really exciting to, A, have clients still manufacturing here and a lot of clients still determined to do it here and still absolutely viable in doing it here. Some clients won't, Sometimes, some clients never will, and that's okay. It's just finding that balance, I think, and really educating them, making sure that when they do choose to manufacture onshore or offshore, they understand all their options and why. And I think there's many processes that we can keep here, and we will. So all our latest projects are all going to be manufactured onshore. Our skylights are being manufactured here with a local extrusion company. Aluminium Industries are a great local company. You know, we have our lighting company, 3D printing lighting in, in Thomastown. We, that, that's something that they could be importing potentially, or they could just be not 3D printing and injection molding and doing it in China, but instead they choose to be different, they choose to be agile, and, you know, in my opinion, they're being really innovative in that they're 3D printing final product. It's, it's awesome, yeah. and it's local, which is cool. Yeah. yeah, and I guess it'll enable them to evolve to other products as well. And that's yeah. what they're doing. We now sign them up for a second project to design pendant lighting, so from track lighting, very specific feature, to a more aesthetically driven market, it's going to be really interesting, so... Um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Got a few, a few more questions for you. Sure. One's about really, I guess, why why are you doing this? Like why do you like doing this? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I'm driven by opportunity. I, 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 I see something and I find it hard not to get excited. I'm a really excitable person. I'm really passionate about just about everything I do, no matter what it is, whether it's sport, whether it's work, whether it's my relationship, whether it's family. I'm I'm super passionate. And it often comes across in, in the way I talk and people say, geez, you're really excited about this, aren't you? And I, and I said, oh, am I? Does it sound like And they say, yeah, you're really sort of excited. I don't know what it is, but I, I have an absolute conviction that I can choose to take the positive on everything and I just happen to be really passionate and love what I do and that is product development. I love seeing a problem or an opportunity. I love finding a solution for that particular area and, and it's I think if it would describe my job, it's coming into work, which is drinking good coffee, it's pumping the, pumping the tunes and it's working with a bunch of really cool people. And when you throw that into the area of product development, coming up with new products and new ideas and new solutions to things, there's not a lot that sounds bad in that. And so I just love it. I, the bigger why, I love the idea of designing product that's going to help people. I love the idea of designing product that'll, that'll make, it'll have impact. It'll be around to last, not for the sake of recognition or for money, but I think those great solutions that last, they, they just excite me. I just think that companies like Tesla, brands that are there and, and products are there and they seem to be there for good, 
that's really exciting. I just think that I'm in that world. I get to play in that space. And if I can grow my career to end up in that sort of line of product, then I'd be a really happy person. I already am, but that would be really make me excited. So rather than just product for the sake of product, which sometimes you do have those briefs come on board and you do design product and you think, you know, does the world really need that? Maybe not, but I think um, we're always trying to push in that space. So I didn't answer your question very clearly, but I just have a real passion for what I do. I get excited by most things I do and I, um, I believe I can have real impact. Yeah. And so I just, I'm trying to push towards that space as much as I can. They're really impactful, they're really insightful, they're really meaningful product. Yeah, yeah I think that's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. The last two questions is what I ask all my guests. The first one is around these things that you are, you know, you're, you're subtly disrupting here, which is the name of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, but you're, you're doing that through how industry and universities relate and yes. collaborate yes. and through the products that you develop and the innovations that you bring into, into your being as well. Sure. Is there something outside of what you're doing at the moment that, that gets you a little bit excited that you think, I'd love to be, one day I would like to be part of that once I've finished here or I wish somebody would, would take that on and take that on and, you know, do some kind of really cool thing with that. I've thought about that a lot. Yeah. There's a, there's a general, my general feeling towards what I'm doing here at the uni and talking about disruption is that to be slightly controversial, I don't think it's okay for universities to exist and not have enough people who are linked to industry. And so there's a, there's a big fall-on effect, mainly to the students. At the end of the day, we're here for the students, really. The Centre for Design Innovation is less about the students, but really we have a great effect because a lot of us teach into the courses. I think that that should be a must, and so I'm very, very driven to ensure that we continue to have great links between the university and industry to ensure that we're delivering the best and most relevant content. So I'll start with that. Do I have an idea that I think someone should be working or I'd love them to address or try? I'm not very specific with that answer, but I just want to be a part of that in general. So I look at a Tesla and I, I want to do that. Not the car. I want, I want the car. <laughs> but I would love to one day do that, have that big idea that people believe in and there's a great brand and a great culture around that. So the, one, of the, one of the biggest things about the work here that we're doing is the culture between the staff. I love the idea of being a part of a big idea and having great culture and a great brand that, that people believe in and, and want to follow and we build something together. I don't have a specific idea or a specific product. I just love that part. I love the idea of taking an idea and building it into something that really excites me. Yeah. I get to that on a daily level with our clients. Yeah. I guess to answer your question, the ultimate for me would be do it for myself. Yeah. But, but with a group of awesome people, and I've got those awesome people here daily, and so it's about sort of using people like that, sheer conviction towards something bigger and better. So no specifics, but those big picture ideas that truly benefit others or address something really significant, I'd love to be a part of that yeah. on a big level. That, that scale cool. excites me. Yeah. yeah. It really excites me. That's, I can identify also with creating a great working environment too. That's something that really gels with me. For me, that's number one here. Yeah. I can. I, I believe that, yeah, I'm a big believer in culture. I, I love what I do, so coming to work's easy. It really is. Even a stressful day, I don't. I have very few of them. But when it is a little bit, geez, I barely sit on that, that bit of that stress, that bit of negativity for long because I just, I just love what I do. And so loving what you do for me is number one. If I didn't like it, I, I just wouldn't do it, but it's not that easy for everyone. So I know a lot of people that they find that answer of I just love what I do quite surprising, and I, I feel quite... Not saddened, but I feel quite surprised by that. And so having everybody that I work with, um, I guess I could say my team, but we are a team. They're not my team. I tend to sort of manage 
all the projects here, but we as a collective are a, as a bunch of happy individuals and, yeah. and that makes for a pretty awesome culture. And it also, it directly affects the results. Yeah. Our clients come in and they see it. They, they see the excitement, they get excited. They see the results and they want to do another project with you. You, you can't help but get motivated when you see other people so excited about what they're doing. And, and it shows when you get in here early and they're already here or if you get in, get in later on and they're back till all hours and, and they don't have to necessarily but they want to, it's because they just love what they're doing. And I guess when you play with this many toys and you play with these sorts of projects, it makes it easier. But I think we're all similar-minded in that we're just really enjoying what we're doing. And so for me, culture is everything. If, if I can keep everybody enjoying what they're doing and keep the environment fun and enjoyable and we can keep that passion in the air, well, then I think we'll just continue on this path of success. And that's why I believe that a lot of these sort of industry engagement type setups within universities can be a flush in the pan because it's easy to, to start, it's easy to get a project, it's easy for someone in the system to land an industry project and try and deliver on it. But to string them together time and time again, keep bringing in money, to keep finding great solutions to problems, it's not all that easy, yet we've managed to do it for six years running now. We've built the team from three to 16, sorry, 14. So we're doing something right and I put a big part of that to culture, a big part. Yeah. Well, last question is about yourself and about small, subtle thing that you've done in your own life that's had an important, positive impact that would be interesting for other people to hear about as well. Is there something that comes to mind? There is. I've got a good one. Yeah. <laughs> that's a recent lesson, and I wish I'd learnt it earlier. I started my own business in my last year of university in 2009, a design consultancy, had three business partners. Third one walked away pretty early. Second one, who now works within this team, we built it together over, yeah, seven, almost eight years. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. Two lessons. One was that jumping out so early meant that we learned so much and grew so quickly that I couldn't be more grateful for that. And, I, and I'm so glad we did that. I wouldn't ever, ever undo that. It was brilliant. And the sheer div- diversity in, in the lessons we've learned and the knowledge that we've picked up on multiple levels, both as a product designer but as a business owner and a business partner, has been invaluable. The lesson that I learned on the flip side is that I wish I'd walked away earlier. <laughs> yeah. You know, getting excited by things is one thing and I do that a lot with a lot of, a lot of my life because I, I love so much. I'm so passionate in general for, for most things. But we learned that, that after a while we weren't driving it the way we needed to and, you know, we were taking on too much and we're letting ourselves get pulled in too many ways. And we sat down and spoke about that and realised that we'd let it get too far from where we wanted it to be and it was time to talk or walk away. And there was one, one lesson, and it's not a regret, I refuse to have regrets, but it's one lesson is that signs were there and I should have stepped away earlier. So on a positive note, I wish I'd stepped away earlier because that would have given me that little bit more time, probably 12 months, to really focus in on what I want to do in life and that is doing what I'm doing now keep keep digging and keep tunneling and keep driving for that that bigger idea that we'll eventually get to so two lessons there don't regret it because the knowledge was amazing but we should have stepped away earlier yeah awesome nathan thank you so much for the chat it's been awesome that's been my absolute pleasure hey it's adam here again thanks for listening to my conversation with nathan after my conversation with him i was left thinking about how can we bring our values to the progress that's happening all around us. I think a lot of, and I, when I was at Swinburne, incidentally, I, I, this is one of the questions that I did end up pondering quite a bit. Like, how can we use technology and progress for good? How can we shape it so that it becomes a tool in, in creating a world we want to inhabit? It's one where we're more closely aligned with our ecosystem, where we're, we're more connected, 
more well-beings. Um, so, yeah, maybe um, that's something that was interesting to you as well. If you've got any suggestions for me about the show or people you think I would be interested in interviewing, please send them through over email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. I love hearing about any kind of subtle disruption and thanks for the feedback that's been coming through over the past couple of weeks. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your quest for subtle disruption. And bye for now. <laughs>